0: This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell.
1: Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for October 28th, 2019. The roots of America's current bitter political divide could be dated to the 1994 Republican takeover of the House and the huge promise of reform that came with that. What happened to the contract with America? Let's find out from someone at the heart of it.
0: Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice.
1: Coming up in a few minutes. They
2: completely lost focus and they were able to stay, hold on to power till the election of 2006. But in terms of an actual force of change, it was pretty much spent by the fall of, of 1995.
1: You were in politics at the time. Were you very disappointed with this?
2: Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I wrote
1: the book. That's coming up in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to thank my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. Patreon, for the people who don't know, is a system that allows those people to donate a dollar or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. And if you could add to that, do the same as those donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show of how to do it. I was talking last week about about how the libel laws in England prevent journalists from working and keep stories about the rich and powerful under wraps. That doesn't happen much in the US. As I mentioned last week, the US follows the 1964 precedent called New York Times v. Sullivan from a libel case taken by a Montgomery police commissioner, L.B. Sullivan, who said that some inaccuracies in a piece about the policing of a civil rights demonstration in Alabama libelled him. In the UK, he would have been certain of a win and probably a big payout, but the Supreme Court agreed with the New York Times that they're going to make some honest mistakes from time to time, and if that could put them out of business, that would effectively restrain their free expression. They ruled that proving the facts is not enough to sue. You must prove the journalist knew or should have known the truth and maliciously or recklessly wrote something false anyway. Basically, you have to prove what was in their mind, an almost impossible task. That's why there is no big libel business in the US. But someone did win a libel case recently. His name is Leonard Posner. He's the father of Noah Posner, who was murdered at the age of six years in the Sandy Hook school shooting. The court ruled that James Fetzer, a crackpot conspiracy theorist, must pay him 450,000 euro. Fetzer had made up multiple ludicrous theories to claim the shooting didn't happen, that the murdered boy never existed, and published them in a book. When, probably unwisely, Leonard Posner published his son's birth certificate, Fetzer accused him of faking it. Someone once said that every decision is made for two reasons, a good reason and a real reason. I suspect that the real reason that Fetzer lost the case is because he's a vile individual who made it his life's mission to terrorise the grieving parents of murdered children in a crazed attempt to bend reality to match his ideology. But the good reason, the reason why it was possible to find against him legally is because there was ample evidence that Fetzer had oceans of information to show that what he was writing was untrue, but he published it anyway. He had, after all, been posting on it online obsessively, so he couldn't have claimed that the information wasn't available to him. It's sort of ironic that his obsessiveness actually hurt him legally rather than helped him but that was a very exceptional legal case. It's extremely rare for anyone to win a significant libel case, which is why it's rare that they're even taken. Is this a good situation? The rise of fake news cannot be seen in isolation from this issue. There are some outlets out there that freely publish lie after lie that make a lot of money doing that because it brings in the clicks and people who are being lied about can basically do nothing about it. The effect of this is that public pressure, which can sometimes convert into political pressure, is making big tech companies into a poor substitute for libel courts. Twitter, Facebook and others are feeling the pressure to get fake news off their platforms – Or at least to be given less attention, and they are responding to some degree. They try to outsource the decision as to what is fake and what isn't, but they can't run away from it totally. Many of the platforms, as they call themselves to try and avoid the tag publishers, many of them have been deleting posts, closing accounts, banning people. Conservatives in particular have complained about being victimised about this. Whether they're just being snowflakes or have a genuine grievance is another question. But this highlights a question that we aren't tackling. There's a list of things. No effective libel laws. Frictionless publishing for everyone with a phone. Social media companies not being a privatised judge and jury and the defense of people who are the victims of merciless campaigns of lies. You can have some of the things on that list, but you can't have all of them.
0: Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at com and say what you think.
1: In 1980, Scott Faulkner was the National Director of Personnel for the Reagan-Bush presidential campaign. He went on to serve the Reagan administration in executive positions at the FAA, at the General Services Administration and the Peace Corps. He serves on the boards of numerous corporations and foundations, and he's the author of a best-selling book called Naked Emperors – the Failure of the Republican Revolution. That was published in 2007. I have Scott on the line now. And Scott, for people who perhaps weren't quite as aware as you were at the time, what was the Republican Revolution? That was 1994, was it?
2: That is correct. What happened was, is that from, ni- from literally 1954 election until 1994, the Democrats had complete control of the House of Representatives. So the Republicans never even came close in taking control of the House. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, uh, Newt Gingrich, who was a congressman from Georgia and who was the minority leader for the House of Representatives, the the leader for the Republicans, came up with Contract for America, which was, for the first time ever, creating kind of almost like a European parliamentary uh, manifesto Mm-hmm. To say this is what we're going to run on and if we get elected this is what we're going to do and so it resonated with the public and so for the first time since 1954 the republicans took control of the congress with and with great message discipline which got them through the election mm-hmm. and great hopes for actually making something happen and except for a few areas in the operational side of the house nothing else really happened and therein lies the uh, failure of the revolution.
1: And Newt Gingrich at the time was an incredibly divisive figure. He had managed to use, this was really in the era before cable TV news stations had really taken off, but he had sort of made his own cable TV news station in the run-up to that election by just uh, speaking on the floor of the House and being really very, very critical of the Democrats. And he had almost become a TV star on C-SPAN, if such a thing exists. He was very ideologically driven. Wasn't he
2: very much so? And you're right that the uh, C-SPAN actually came in in 1979, but was still had a very limited audience because not many people had cable and all that back then. But as we got into the 90s, C-SPAN became more and more popular. More people had cable television, and so Ginrich used both and, and his team. He had a huge network of of uh, sort of fellow fighters. Mm -hmm. who used the one-minute speeches at the very beginning of each daily session and what they called special orders, which were allowed for members to speak after the main business of the Congress completed. And so they would use those in particular to lay out their case for uh, for why Congress needed to change and what changes they were hoping to do.
1: Okay. And Bill Clinton had won the election against George Bush Sr., perhaps unexpectedly. A year out, it would not have been predicted that he would have become the president, but he had stormed the election. Unseated George Bush Sr. made him into a one-term president in 1992. In 1994, then there was this, as you called it, the Republican Revolution. You weren't the first person to call it. A lot of people called it the Republican Revolution. And they stormed into Congress with all sorts of plans... You say that they failed. I think that's a. I think that's a an accurate representation of that. Even though I think you're coming from the Republican tradition yourself, but why did they fail? What was the the terms of their failure in your view?
2: The pettiness and ego. What happened was is that a lot of of the Republicans, especially the older uh, Republicans who had been in Congress for many years, they literally during our transition period in December of 1994, as we were laying out the reforms, especially the operational reforms of the House, because there are lots of corruption issues which we can get into. And they said, we've watched the Democrats rob the place blind for 40 years. It's now our turn. And so we literally had a, 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 a division within the uh, Republican ranks of those who truly wanted to make change happen and those who really didn't. All they wanted to do was to now grab a hold of power and grab a hold of all the perks that came with it.
1: And you mentioned the contract with America. This was one of the first really modern era campaigning tools. And for people who weren't around at the time, the Republican Party gave out credit card sized little cardboard bullet points of, I can't remember exactly how many promises they made, but it was in. Incredibly resonant. I know that. I think um, Frank Luntz, the uh, the Republican right. pollster, uh, was heavily involved in testing the message. So it was very. It was maybe the first use of very, very sophisticated focus grouping and opinion polling as to what yes. the election issues should be. Of those items, how many were achieved?
2: Except for the operational. Changes inside the House, which are non-parliamentary, just you know how you run the restaurants and the telephones and all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, not a one of them made it through. What part of it was? Ginrich said, and, and he had a hundred-day plan. So just before their Easter recess break in the spring of 1995, he said, "We will vote each one of these through the House of Representatives," and he did achieve that. But mm-hmm. the Senate passed only a few of them and Clinton vetoed all of them. So the result was, is that they had some great media in the spring of 95, but it didn't go anywhere after that. And they really didn't have a follow up plan. There were lots of things and my book talks about them, uh, that they could have been doing in the spring to lay the groundwork for a much longer uh, strategic uh, change process. But they wanted to get the media uh, soundbite, so to speak. And they got them by Easter of uh, 95. And then you had the budget confrontation with Clinton that fall, which again, they they did not lay the groundwork for. And so by then, uh, they completely lost focus, and they were able to hold on to power till the, the election of 2006. But in terms of an actual force of change, it was pretty much spent by the fall of, of 1995.
1: You were in politics at the time. Were you very disappointed with this?
2: Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book was both because my role was as the first chief administrative officer of the House. And long story short, all of these corruption issues that arose In the early 1990s, dealing with the banking scandal, the post office scandal, the restaurant scandal, the gift shop scandal, Mm -hmm. a number of members of Congress actually went to prison over it. And so that was one of the areas where they said, we've got to make changes happen. They brought me in. They abolished all sorts of various offices within the Congress and consolidated all non-parliamentary and and non-security functions under myself or under my office and actually made me a member of Congress with basically everything but non-voting, but but voting. So I had unprecedented powers to reinvent, rethink and reinvent Congress for the first time since the Continental Congress. And so that's a whole discussion, which is, again, in my book. But we were so hopeful that by basically freeing the Congress up from its corruption – making it more accountable, bringing it into the 21st century in terms of the information age and digital access, that we would sort of grease the wheels for a policy revolution, and that never happened. So a lot of us who were hoping that we would be the enablers for for an even bigger sea change to this day still stare at walls and and just say, what could have been?
1: Okay, and I want to move on from that because your book, I think, was published in 2007, which would have been very Correct. close to the end of the George Bush, George W. Bush presidency. It Correct. happened Before, I guess, you did all of the writing before it was clear that Obama was going to be president. And politics, you know, it seems, I don't want to make you sound old, Scott, but it seems like uh, light years ago that politics has moved on so much since then. And really what I'm interested in is how that change in messaging has affected what has happened since Do you think, and I know that you, you know, you'll think that there were positive things in there and and clearly in terms of the organization of Congress, uh, there were very important things happening. But do you think that that sort of take no prisoners attitude and very hostile language that the contract with America introduced into campaigning, do you think that that has run out of control?
2: Very much so. But I would have to say that I'm I'm now literally a few pages uh, left and reading the Ch- Chernow's brilliant book on the biography of Alexander Hamilton. Of course, Hamilton in 1804 is shot dead by the vice president
1: mm-hmm. of
2: the United States, Aaron Burr. So um, politics has been pretty. You, you've just, you've just, ruined
1: the, you just ruined the night for a few people who are going out to a musical. Yeah, that, that was right. a spoiler, I guess. But well,
2: when, yeah, we, yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, a <laughs> um, bit, la- bit the, late uh, now. But the um, but the issue is is politics is, has always had a vicious streak to it. I think the difference of of today's vicious streak compared to some of those that have woven in and out. I mean, good lord, America fought a civil war because Abraham Lincoln got elected. Mm-hmm. So it is that uh, the age of nuance is over, and so when you have only you know they've expanded it, but in the original Twitter environment is 140 characters. When you try to express yourself in 140 characters, nuance vanishes. When you are trying to raise money for your campaign and you're trying to get everybody uh, scared to death about the other side and therefore they should write you the check, uh, you start to demonize the other side. The um, ability to work across the aisles, in fact, I mean, if, if I was the CAO now, trying to do the reforms now, I don't think I could have gotten even a fraction of the things done because so much of what we did in in 94 through 96 and and onward basically had to transcend politics. We had people on the Democrat side helping us out because we had to counterbalance the Republican old guard who didn't want the reforms at all. So uh, bipartisanship is extremely rare nowadays And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, One in particular is the the Republicans made a big deal about earmarks. And earmarks uh, have been around, again, since literally the first Congress, but they had been getting out of control. They were uh, more and more tied to political favors behind the scenes. An earmark is basically a member of Congress inserting language buried deep in a bill or a bill report saying, you will spend the money on this Mm
3: -hmm. in my
2: district or whatever. And uh, it worked on a lot of fronts, but as uh, waste started to uh, uh, be exposed and especially the prid pro quo corruption began to be exposed, they said, let's get rid of earmarks. Well, one problem with that is that it was a calming function because if somebody was adamant against a bill, you could go and say, you know, that bridge you've wanted for 20 years to uh, take care of uh, that bottleneck in that one town of yours, mm-hmm. uh, we'll put it in the bill if you just shut up for a while. <laughs> yeah. And that, and so the, the, the carrots were no longer there. That only left them with sticks. And the sticks are what we're seeing every day play out in social media and uh, cable television.
1: The ways that politics has coarsened, do you feel in any way guilty about that there was the seeds of that particularly maybe in the george bush senior ads in that presidential campaign the 19 the willie horton, the willie horton ads i'm thinking of in particular yeah. do you feel any irk of guilt there
2: well i was not involved actually uh, at that point i was uh, had gone well I, I was finishing at the faa at the time so i was not involved with the 88 campaign
3: mm-hmm. um
2: Although Lee Atwater was a longtime friend right up and, and my wife was actually a friend of his right up to uh, to the point of being at his deathbed. So, you know, we we knew him. He and I shared an office during the transition in 8081. But the um, but yeah, that that was a uh, quite an ad. Uh, I think at that point, Caucus, uh, because of the famous or infamous tank uh, uh, footage and other things he was having, he, he was going to lose anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and so this is kind of rubbing it in. You know, I, again, come from the, the Reagan era where you're looking at, at a, a little more positive approach. I mean, Reagan would, would, you know, he would give as good as he got. But he his main messaging was always this morning in America, the sh- shining city on the hill, a very uplifting, all-encompassing vision, worldview, which… Uh,
1: Not which, unlike Obama's campaign.
2: Right, and so the result was is that you know those are the to me politics should be a positive force, but in this day and age we have no, especially on the Republican side we or conservative side, whichever you want to you call it, the there are no real uh, adults, there are no real uh, philosophical um, guidance. Again, when Reagan came in, you had you know, the intellectuals like William F. Buckley and others out there who were writing large books, and there was an actual philosophical core to what was happening. Nowadays, there is no philosophical core. And so the result is, is everybody is uh, just wanting those that five-minute soundbite on Fox News or the uh, uh, the Twitter uh, explosion for, uh, for a news cycle that might only last a few hours. And that's not the way to think strategically.
1: Steve Bannon thinks that he's the philosophical core.
2: Well, um, I've never met Steve, but part of it there, again, he had a very dark view of America. And America has challenges. I talk about the third act. Our first act was from from Jamestown until basically the Spanish-American War, where we were basically forming ourselves into a nation. Our imperialism was basically against Native Americans and pushing out to the West. And then the battleship Maine blows up. America steps onto the world stage. And from there to the fall of the Berlin Wall, America is the most significant player in the world, shaping the outcomes of World War I and Two, shaping the outcome of the Cold War. And then the wall comes down. Reagan gets Alzheimer's. Uh, the Bush dynasty really is not philosophically aligned with Reagan. In fact, many of them denigrated Reagan, which is why my wife and I supported Perot in 92. Mm-hmm. And so the result was is that the Republicans went brain dead until the Gingrich Revolution kind of popped up. And that was, again, a, a short fuse. And so we've been adrift ever since. And I, when I talk about this, I usually say that we didn't just – the Republicans didn't just lose their rudder. They lost their keel. And so we're we're in that situation today. And when you look at the liberal side of the spectrum, they are – some people call it Trump derangement syndrome. But you have so many people who were banking on Hillary winning in 2016, and they just can't get over it. I mean, usually – I mean, I've lost – not as many as elections as I've won in terms of the campaigns I've been on, but you lick your wounds, you, you learn your lessons, you say, I'm not going to do that again, or, I, or maybe I should have knocked on this many more doors, or in the case of Hillary, she should have gone to Wisconsin yep. uh, when she didn't, and so – you lick your wounds you, you you learn your lessons and you prepare for the next round. Yes
1: yeah. you're, you're you know being critical that- you're being critical of the democrats there and that's a reasonable thing to do. But if the democrats for example lost to you in 1980 and that's essentially what they did they regrouped and they tried to uh, advance their policies in other ways isn't Trump essentially a Beast of a different type. Isn't it reasonable to say, look, we can't accept any of this? That it's not that we just accept this loss and, and move on from here. Isn't it true that Trump is just an entirely different type of event? And that it's reasonable to say, no, we have to go back and try and redo that because that's not something that, we're, that's not a position we can move forward from.
2: Well, Trump loves Andrew Jackson. And I think it's very accurate when you talk, look at historic precedents. Andrew Jackson was a tr- was the first true populist, and he he really founded the Democrat Party because up until then they were called either anti-federalists or they were actually called Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jefferson ran as a, as a Republican, and so but they call it, but it obviously a very different definition than today. And but they, you had these erudite landed gentry. Uh, elite uh, intellectuals in in Jefferson and then uh, Madison and then Monroe and the public, especially with the push to the west in America, you had a lot of down and down, you know, salt of the earth pioneers and they were looking looking for someone who would kind of come into Washington, kick the table over and and kind of do something very different, which Andrew Jackson did. He ended up being censured by the Congress. He did the t- Trail of Tears which to this day, Native Americans in America uh, will hold it against him, and rightly so. And so when you look at Trump, he's not a real Republican. He's not a real conservative. He's certainly not an intellectual uh, leader the way – like Reagan, I mean, he had his own radio show. He had columns and things. Mm -hmm. So you have a person who got into office because, once again, starting with the Tea Party – You had a whole movement in America that just wants someone to come in and kick the table over. Sure, yeah, but pause
1: that idea. Pause that idea for a moment, Scott, because that's true. And there will be some people who are, you know, throwing their iPhones out the window because they don't want to hear criticism of Trump because either because they, they disagree with it or because they've heard too much of it. But what I'm interested in, and I absolutely accept your distinction between the type of Reagan Democrat, the type of Reagan Republican that you are and being on the conservative side and the Trump populism. But it's true, isn't it? And you mentioned Lee Atwater. There is a link between the two, and the Republican conservatives perhaps started pushing on a door that they found was beneficial to them to and then all of a sudden Trump storms through that door but that door was really opened by the Lee Atwater type of very negative, very hostile campaigning. Uh, Lee Atwater, for the people who don't know, was responsible for various uh, political ads that were accused of being nothing short of racist. What's your attitude to the link between the two, though?
2: Well, again i I've always said pox on both houses the the, the uh, coarsening of America's civic dialogue is and the inability of people to share public space with people they disagree with uh The deterioration has been there even before atwater, but it's sped up, let us say under atwater it certainly sped up with the way Ginrich and Gopak put together the um uh, Republican revolution coming into ninety four and then, when they ran out of steam and ran out of focus, all they had left was the attack side of the house, not the inspirational or aspirational side of the house. And therein lies the issue on on the Republican and conservative side. And you know, the just like you know, a, a, a brawl in some uh, you know third grade um, uh, schoolyard, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, one side. Hits the other, the other side hits back, and they're rolling around the ground and in the mud, and that's basically where we are today. And so, you know, who who struck first and 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 who struck second and all that. The issue is we got two uh, parties that have you know, decades of uh, of gravitas and philosophy and accomplishment behind them, and they're two third graders rolling around in the mud in, in the playground, and. I think that's turned a lot of people off, and it's also certainly poisoned the ability to to work together on issues that you really can work together on. I mean, that's enough. Trump had led with the infrastructure. I think everybody agrees in America that our infrastructure desperately needs a revamp. I mean, a lot of bridges falling apart, Mm -hmm. our airports are – Many of them are embarrassment. I mean anyone who travels in the world and unfortunately most americans don't I mean maybe about fourteen percent of Americans have passports
3: mm-hmm.
2: so for those of us who do travel in the world and you you land in Kuala Lumpur and look at their airport you go to you go on a bullet train anywhere in Europe and basically can get from one one capital to another faster than you can on a commuter train going into new york boston or washington d c mm-hmm. Yeah, there is something definitely lagging in our country, and that could have been a great unifying force. And they haven't yet to even put forth even the most rudimentary infrastructure bill. And so they'd rather slug it out, and it's sad.
1: Asking you about the future, I won't ask you if you're optimistic, but I'll ask you, if there's optimism, where is it?
2: It is basically at the state and local level. America, of course, being a federal system, a lot of the power, a lot of the actions that affect people on a daily basis, whether it's filling the pothole or collecting the trash, is done at local government level and you have and the other beauty is with something like uh you know, thirty four hundred uh, counties and and you know and even more uh, municipalities and towns,
3: mm-hmm. you
2: have the ability for people to try new ideas and it's and because it's a federal system you have a a better chance of impacting things i mean people can certainly write their congressman and senator they can come to washington they can go on a march but the lobbyists the money pollutes the system and dilutes uh normal people's input but at the local level where somebody you know a couple thousand votes can elect a, a mayor of a town a couple thousand votes can elect a county commissioner or county clerk or sheriff that you can really make an impact you can recruit candidates you can help candidates you can uh, hold their feet to the fire once they get off office because the number of people who show up at a public meeting at a local level is minuscule so one person's voice is magnified many fold and the other part is in America a person who becomes a county commissioner or county clerk or town mayor—that's uh, the farm team. Those are the people who are going to run for Congress or senator or governor one day. I mean, look at uh, you know Mayor Pete, uh, who's, a, who's a mayor himself from uh, basically a me- medium-sized city, running for president. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where my optimism is: is that you know, for, for basically having federalism's magic from 1787 onward uh, really work us out of this spot that we're in and get the local level right, get the local officials elected right, and have them percolate up, and it may take a generation. But having some of those people who, again, when you're worrying about trash collection and potholes, it's hard to be partisan. <laughs> I mean, those are there's no no Republican or Democrat way to fill a pothole. And so you start to learn to work together. You start to look at the community first, the politics or party second. And there are people who I've worked with over the years. I started in politics and puberty and politics start at the same time, <laughs> Around sixteen years of age. That's why I've that you know I'm not ancient, but I've been around a long time because I've started very young. But the uh, but seeing some people who literally started out in that, yes, they still had hard, solid core beliefs that they felt passionate about, but they also saw that community over party was important and they took it with them to the legislature or to the Congress or to the governorship and not, not a majority by any stretch, but enough of a plurality To make a difference, and so that's really my message of hope. And my what, what lets me go to sleep at night is to know that there are those pipelines out there. There are those opportunities out there, where people, normal people, can run for office. Normal people can help those people run for office, and the magic of federalism, and the percolator that federalism creates, can ultimately change the national scene between. Now and then, the national scene is a freak show and unfortunately will probably remain so.
1: Scott Faulkner, author of Naked Emperors, The Failure of the Republican Revolution. Thank you very much for talking to me.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show.
1: Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Scott Faulkner at ScottFaulkner53. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon. I really appreciate them. They help me devote more time to research and to getting new guests. And if you could do the same as them, donate a book or two per podcast or per month, you can do that at patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find a link on the website. Also there, you'll find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's November 4th, I'll be talking to progressive columnist Michael Talberg about the standards that the Democrats should hold themselves to. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.